0: This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg and welcome to episode 46 of Inside COVID-19. In this episode, South Africa's Business Confidence Index falls to an almost impossibly low 5 points out of a potential 100. We explore the change in banking behavior with spending plummeting and savings rising. A University of Free State breakthrough in measuring viral loads of sewerage that will aid management of outbreaks in our country by location. We hear about what will be needed for South Africa to attract foreign direct investment post the pandemic, and there are highlights of today's business webinar with political economy specialists Moletsi Mbeki and Yaki Saliers. First, in the COVID-19 headlines today, South Africa recorded another 82 coronavirus mortalities on Tuesday. That equals Monday's record and takes total deaths to 1,162. The country's mortality to confirmed case proportion at 2.2% is still, however, below the global average of 5.6%. Put differently, South Africa ranks 30th on total deaths to the virus, but 22nd on total cases. But the country's recent rising mortality rate has put it into the world's top 10 for the first time, with Tuesday's deaths higher than those in former hotspots of Italy and Iran and more than double Africa's next hardest hit nation, Egypt, which reported daily deaths of 35 on Tuesday. Globally, Brazil remains on top of the list of daily mortalities with almost 1,200 on Tuesday. The other countries in yesterday's top 10 were the United States, Mexico, the UK, India, Russia, Peru, Pakistan, France, and in 10th spot, South Africa. The Solidarity Fund has provided a 250 million Rand grant to South Africa's National Health Laboratory Service, which will enable a further 1.1 million coronavirus tests to be conducted. The fund has also given 88 million rand to the SA Medical Research Council and a consortium of several universities to help them scale up the testing in their virology labs, adding capacity of up to 12,000 additional tests a day. The fund has also given a 20 million rand grant to the DSTIM and Global Health Innovations Laboratories. To enable free testing at walk in facilities for those not on medical aid who could otherwise not afford to have this test. This is expected to add a further 33,000 tests to the national effort. American Global Financial Services Group JP Morgan is to donate 21 million Rand to assist with immediate relief for vulnerable, hard hit South Africans. Two-thirds of this will be used to assist small business owners such as food retailers with a balance being used as emergency relief to families that are facing hunger. The donation is part of JP Morgan's $11 million grant across Middle East, Africa and Europe to provide access to capital and technical assistance for small businesses that have been affected by the COVID-19 crisis. South Africa's business confidence dropped to an unprecedented low during the second quarter, the RMB-BER index recording just five points out of a potential 100. This is the only time in its 45 years of measurement that the index is in single digits. It surpasses the previous low of 12 points set in the depths of the 1977 and 1985 economic recessions. The index, which is measured quarterly among 1,800 executives, was already on a sharply declining trend before COVID-19 struck, falling from 26 in the final quarter of last year to 18 in the first three months of 2020. Insights on what all of this means coming up in this episode with RMB Chief Economist Etienne Leroux. Although airports have reopened from the beginning of the month, Business travelers will find the experience rather different to what they previously saw. To reduce the high touch points, airport passengers have to scan their own boarding passes and while going through security scans, they must place all their loose items in their hand luggage with only laptops allowed to be separately scanned. They're also required to re-enter the queue should they trigger an alarm on the metal detector's Travellers are also required to arrive at airports at least two hours in advance of their flights. They will undergo temperature screening and be required, of course, to wear masks at all times. Etienne Leroux is the Chief Economist at RMB. And your collaboration with uh, the Bureau for Economic Research at Stellenbosch University brings us... The Business Confidence Index, Etienne, did you ever think in your wildest dreams that we'd see this falling to five out of a potential 100?
1: Yeah, no, Alec, it is an unbelievably low number. In a way, not a surprise. After all, if you close down a big part of the economy and they're not allowed to operate, um, you're surely going to see shocking numbers. And that is exactly what the second quarter results show.
0: Is this five just a figure for the conditions in the second quarter?
1: That's exactly what it is. Let me just take you back one step. We have about 1,800 executives that we surveyed across um, five sectors in the economy. Essentially, what we ask them is, how do you judge conditions as it is now, now being the second quarter, relative to what you experienced in the first quarter of the year? And from that information, we compile this index, and If the index level is above 50, it means that you are in net optimism terrain. And if the index is below 50, you are in net negative terrain. In other words, pessimism prevails. So it's a reflection of how companies and our respondents have experienced economic conditions in the second quarter. Now, what is important here is that over time, Alec, business confidence has proven itself to be a relatively reliable leading indicator for stuff like fixed investment and job creation. In other words, if business confidence picks up from this very low level, which I suspect it will, it would probably also give us an idea that over time, if the increase in business confidence is sustained for whatever reason, job creation and fixed investment will follow. And as a consequence, those two factors will actually help generate economic activity.
0: Is there anything in this that can give us some hope?
1: It's a good question. The short answer is, across the board, our respondents are very, very worried about the next few quarters. So this is them telling us that they are concerned and they are unsure and there's a lot of things that, that worry them. Let me just give you one or two examples. Some of our respondents in the building and construction sector are telling us that future projects are being cancelled. Now, obviously, that's very bad news if you're a building contract or a, a subcontractor deriving your income from that particular sector. We're also starting to see, for example, some of our manufacturing or respondents in the manufacturing sector as a response to COVID-19 are cutting back a fixed investment. Now, it's a understandable thing to do because given the massive level of uncertainty you would probably you know not only cutting back on investment but you would also cut back on various other costs to improve liquidity because you don't know what tomorrow brings but if you cut back on fixed investment it obviously has negative implications for future economic activity interestingly enough alec even some of our retailers they normally are a relatively positive bunch um, of people Historically, if they took a knock in a particular quarter for whatever reason, they were always hopeful that next quarter and the quarter thereafter things will will improve and look better. Interestingly enough, this time around, it's not the case. So there's a deep-rooted concern here amongst many of our respondents. They are very worried about what the next quarter and two or three quarters from here will bring. And I don't think you can blame them. I mean, um, we are talking here, about uh, a a one-in-a-hundred-year event, and it is quite clear from the survey results that this was a massive confidence shock um, to our respondents.
0: Well, if we have a look back at uh, the beginning of the survey in 1975, since then the two lowest points were mid-77 and then mid-85, both very deep recessions for South Africa And both of those were more than double the index that we've now seen. So, (laughs) wow, what does it tell us about what we're heading for?
1: The fact that confidence dropped to only five points in the second quarter. Obviously, it spells very bad news for the economy in the very near term. I mean, if a confidence level drops to five, it means that the second quarter GDP number, the contraction that we're going to experience, is going to be something like we've never experienced before in this country. But that is the short term. Now, obviously, if in the next few months we move from lockdown three to lockdown two, in other words, as the government relax the restrictions, you're certainly going to see an improvement in economic activity. If you suddenly allow a company to do business from being shut all along, certainly that's, you're going to see that in the data. And your high-frequency data are already starting to show an improvement in economic activity as more companies are allowed to operate. But our fear, Alec, is that the rebound is not going to be perhaps as significant as you are likely to see um, in other countries. And there are a couple of specific reasons why I'm saying that. The first thing is we also, we need to understand that the economy was in a weak spot um, even before COVID-19. So we bought the virus from a position of weakness, not strength. The reason why that is important is that in one simple way, it obviously limits your ability as a government to respond to the crisis, just purely from a fiscal strength perspective. Public finances were weak before COVID-19, which means that the government was never really in a position to dish out significant fiscal stimulus. We could never match what we saw in the developed world, for example. What is also unfortunately counting against us is that, A lot of the fiscal policy initiatives to help SMEs and to help uh, people losing their work is very slow in being implemented. So the effectiveness um, of some aspects of the fiscal policy stimulus is not that great. And I also think what is important, if in June lockdown three means that 80% of the economy is allowed to operate, let's flip that statistic around. What it also tells you is that 20% of this economy has been locked down since 26th of March. So they have now been not allowed to generate income or sales for going in 12 weeks. Now, I think there's a significant portion of that, those companies, that are simply not going to make it. So the sad reality is that COVID-19, in the context of what I just highlighted, is going to leave a permanent scar on this economy. We're certainly going to see company closures, perhaps more so in the SME space. And and we all know, Alec, that if a company closed down, there are various other negative implications. People lose their income as unemployment goes up, and that is then certainly something that weighs on domestic spending and demand in the economy. So there's no doubt that in the second half of this year, economic growth will pick up More companies can generate sales and income. There will be economic activity. But I think what we should not confuse is growth rates with level. The economy can register positive growth in the second half of this year and into 2021. But I think it's going to take the economy at least three to four years to get South Africa's GDP in level terms back to what GDP was in 2019
0: what about the really hard hit sectors people who sell big ticket items like motor cars or restaurants or tourists absolutely Uh, what kind of numbers did they give in this uh, business confidence index
1: well if we take for example a new car dealer it's an industry that uh, was not allowed to operate at all in april lockdown level five then for much of May, they were also not allowed to, to open up, which means that there are two months of sales that these dealerships and these companies have just lost there and then. Now, it's going to take a while to win that back. And no surprise then that as far as the confidence survey is concerned, that business confidence among new vehicle dealers, for example, dropped to almost zero and activity also came to a grinding halt but it's not only for new car dealers for example if you are a retailer and you were not allowed to sell um, hardware or furniture or tv or whatever the case you pretty much had the same experience and that's a sad reality of all of this if you were not classified as providing or manufacturing an essential service well it was um, a very very bad period for you over the last 11 to 12, 12 weeks so Our survey picked that up. In other words, that significant drop in activity, our survey results clearly show that. So what
0: about the people who are hanging on by their fingertips in those sectors, restaurants, motor vehicle sellers, people in tourism, who've been locked down, as you said, since the 26th of March? Is there anything that you can suggest to them that there might be some kind of a pent-up demand, some kind of a rebound that could be coming, or or what would you say to them if it was a member of your family who is in that sector?
1: I think there is an element of pent-up demand, Alec, and I think to some extent that will be realized or released in the next few months and quarters. And that's certainly something that that will benefit those sectors. Just look at, for example, what happened to um, retailers of liquor. Uh, Look at the long queues. There's certainly a lot of pent-up demand that couldn't wait for the opportunity to buy you know, some liquid assets. And to some extent, I think that will apply with respect to these other sectors as well. So my hope is that, first of all, these companies can hang in there, that they had enough financial buffers to see them through this very difficult period. And for those that are surviving this, I think there is um, some hope to the extent that they're will be pent-up demand and that will be released and by implication will give the sector or industry a much-needed boost.
0: And presumably the old economic issue of when people do fall over in an industry, those who still left at the end might benefit more.
1: Yeah, that is the uh, one aspect. I think another aspect is that you might also see, over um, and above that, Alec, you might also see significant consolidation taking place in the, the economy. You know, companies that have very strong balance sheets, a lot of cash, low levels of debt, low levels of gearing, while they are in a very strong position to maybe gain market share, in a post-COVID world by um, taking over other companies. And that I certainly think might also be a feature for what we're going to see in South Africa in a post-COVID-19 world.
0: Akash Dara is the Head of Technical Marketing at Discovery Bank. Akash, I see you're a chartered accountant, so not the kind of person one usually finds in the marketing field. What brought you in there?
2: I actually joined Discovery in special projects, and over time, I've been involved in a lot of the product launches with Discovery Bank, Discovery for Business, et cetera, and really got involved with the sales element of of the insurance products and the banking elements. And really, I think the other thing that's actually quite interesting is technical marketing is quite diverse field and really unique to Discovery because we actually look at marketing, but from an analytics perspective, really try to figure out what drives customer behavior, how do we actually incentivize customers to do things differently and how do we actually get across the value proposition of the discovery products and especially in your banking elements, et cetera, I think what you need to look at here is actually there's a lot of financial concepts that you need a lot of financial knowledge to understand and then I think the trick is to try to bring that down and distill it to a simple metric or a simple way of communicating it to clients. So you kind of need both elements which is, I suppose, how I ended up here.
0: Discovery Bank's an an interesting project, but you did have a head start in many ways by having a discovery card at F&B. Listening at, I think it was at the interim results, Adrian Gore spoke about moving or that you'd moved out a big chunk of your formerly F&B managed clients. What's the update there?
2: Yeah, so, I mean, we've already uh, made good progress there. We've already moved across a significant amount of clients and we should actually be complete with that process before the financial results come out in September where all the clients will actually be administered on our platform. It's quite an intricate process actually to get them across from a client perspective. It's seamless. So clients don't actually, would one day be transacting or swiping their credit card and it'd be going off the F&B platform and the next day would be going off our platform. So we've worked very hard to make that process as seamless as possible for clients so that they can continue operating the way they do.
0: I suppose the point about all of this is that you've got hundreds of thousands of clients, so you would have already seen, given the data that you've told us about earlier, you would have seen some changes in behavior due to COVID-19, and that's really what I'd like to delve into with you. Can you maybe unpack primarily what the changes have been? So, I mean,
2: a lot of them has been intuitive, but I think the first thing is, you know, when we look at it, uh, there really are two big elements is the spending and your savings. And when you look at it from clients in that perspective, I think I can talk about the card book that we have and all the clients that are currently proper banking clients with fixed deposit savings accounts and everything else with us. As you would expect, we saw a really big spike in spending just before the lockdown. It rivaled our biggest spending day in the year, which is Black Friday. Uh, uh, in in many ways, I think people really did, uh, despite the request not to panic buy, I think we saw a huge spike in spend just before. And what happened thereafter was spend actually dropped by more than 50 percent, as you would expect during lockdown, because people were just not spending. What was interesting, though, is when you delve a little bit deeper into that and what you see is people stop spending on, obviously, restaurants and those kind of things. But what you did see was that your grocery spend relatively actually stayed pretty constant during that period. So people were still going out, obviously, and buying groceries and everything else. What the COVID situation actually brought out was it really did reinforce the trends that we identified when we started off the bank around shared value, around spending behavior, around savings behavior. Because the interesting thing is throughout the COVID period, our savings levels actually would increase And we've seen this across the world a little bit. As people stop spending, they've actually saved a little bit more. I read an article recently that the US has actually seen the highest savings rate in recent times. And we're seeing that also come through on our banking side. We've seen our savings level continuously rise over this period. And when even compared to competitors, because we keep a track of these things, what we're seeing over time is clients are identifying with the value proposition of Discovery Bank and the savings element and the additional interest that you can get for having good financial behavior and that coming across. The other thing that we track quite carefully, and I'm sure everyone's tracking during this period, is credit risk. During this time, I think there's a lot of companies that are retention uh, employees. a lot of people have lost their income. Here, we also see, I think, the value of vitality money coming through. We've been looking at our credit risk very carefully over this period. We've been looking at the rears rates uh, across the basis. And you can see a very clear Correlation between a vitality money status and the percentage of clients that are in arrears, percentage of clients that are defaulting. And you can really see the benefit of the program. So when we started this off in 2018 and we, and we told everyone you're not saving enough and you need to save more. What we've seen is the clients that have joined us and have engaged with vitality money and have responded to the nudges and the behavioral nudges that we've put in place in terms of saving extra this month so that you can actually build up your short term savings. Take a protection product so that you can protect yourself against un- unforeseen circumstances. We're seeing that play out now. So those clients are in a much better financial situation, and that's really coming to their aid in the current
0: situation. It's so interesting. So they're making the, the little deposits uh, on a daily basis or a monthly basis, doing the disciplines right. And so when a shock hits, they're in they're better position to absorb it. But what about looking ahead now? Many people have lost their jobs. Many people are going to need a new plan. Is there anything that you guys are thinking about or are planning to help that? People who want to start new businesses, people who literally are going to have to do something very different in future because of the impact that COVID-19 has had on the economy and maybe on their sectors.
2: I think the the Reserve Bank has, has done a lot of work in terms of putting out packages out there to the market. How that actually works is if you're a primary bank with a specific bank, then you are eligible to specific COVID relief measures. From our own perspective, I mean, what we're doing is we have personalized programs in place for clients. So where a client is in, is in financial distress or in that situation, they can apply to us. And we go through a very customized approach with those clients to arrange either different payment mechanisms, et cetera. The other thing that we have looked at is What we've seen over this period is that our rewards and the way our rewards work has actually really come through in a good way because what it has become is a lot more relevant. I mean, I mentioned that element about grocery spend not really reducing. So during this period, we've made significant changes to our program to support clients. As an example, when you look at the way our program works is depending on your spend levels, you get different rewards on your your credit cards. Uh, during the lockdown period, we actually removed all of those spend bands so to give clients the maximum rewards that they could uh, get off any specific Vitality money status. We combined that with Vitality, where they doubled up on their healthy food discounts, which essentially for our clients that were in Diamond Vitality money status on on some of our products would get up to 100% of our healthy food, as an example. That was just one of the ways we, we could support our clients in a way that would be relevant to them. So clients that went out there during the lockdown and bought healthy food would get the maximum discount that, that they could probably get and a, a maximum cashback in terms of their purchases.
0: Am I hearing yeah, you right there, Kash? Some of the clients are actually getting their healthy food for free because you get 100% discount. Yeah. Is that
2: right? It, it, it pretty much, Yeah, exactly. Obviously, we have our limits in place, et cetera. But I mean… For a general client, it's, it's well within the, uh, the realms of getting the 100% off. I, mean, I personally got those amounts back and, and you get it back in discovery miles, which uh, you can convert into cash at the exchange rate that's favorable. The other thing you can do is you could use it to buy airtime and, and electricity. We've brought that feature on board as well, where you could buy airtime and electricity at a discount. So you could get, if you use your discovery miles, you could get electricity at a 50 up to an airtime up to a 15% discount on our app. So that could really help clients, I think, run prepaid policies. And and we know data has, has come under extreme usage during this period. Those are elements. The other thing we looked at also was in terms of rewarding people for being physically active. With the gyms being closed, et cetera, we've seen that people are exercising more at home. Uh, so Vitality had that entire program where they had people training online classes, et cetera. And what we did was then said, Well, all the points that you earn from physical activities, we would then match on a one-to-one basis in discovery miles. So that just gave clients almost another way to monetize their physical activity. And the last thing we did was we actually also looked at reducing our criteria for some of our active rewards goals where clients would typically need to swipe. We'd have points of up to 25 points a week where you'd need to swipe your credit card to get a smoothie or a play on our active rewards ring. It would also fund, for instance, your iPhone or your Apple benefit. We reduced that during the COVID period down to one swipe because we knew clients weren't actually going to go out there and spend the way they typically spent. So we put in a lot of stuff. We've been very careful and very thoughtful about the way we did it just to ensure that we didn't end up in a situation where we just told clients, oh, okay, we'll give you a payment holiday and four months later, we'll accrue all of the interest and all that will happen is four months later, you'll just have more money more to spend we've been really thoughtful to think about well how do we do it in a way that actually rewards clients for behaving in an appropriate manner and also give them the opportunity to get real value out of the product because in our minds this is the time where you need to show up and actually give your clients the real value
0: so you've looked at COVID-19 realized that uh, circumstances have changed and then adjusted your products accordingly which in a big organization is not always easy to do. From your side though, have the clients reacted when when you look at it with your marketing hat on?
2: I think the benefit we also have is we're a completely digital bank. We can onboard clients from the comfort of your home in as quick as four minutes. And we did a recent benchmarking exercises where we compared ourselves to the big banks in the world, the big FinTech banks in the world. And uh, just to give you an idea, I mean, in terms of the number of clicks it takes to join Discovery Bank, we only have 34 clicks. That's the second best that you can get. When we did a benchmark around how long it would take a client to join Discovery Bank, we've got clients that joined us in as little as four minutes. So really, from that perspective, and it's 24-7, right? So we can have clients that join us at 11 o'clock at night, two o'clock in the morning. and, And we're almost obsessive about this. So it's real time on our phone. So Often, my wife will see me actually just before bed, check exactly how many clients join, And, and it would be amazing to see the difference between 11 p.m. and 7 a.m. I join and you see another 20 or 30 people join. It's like, when did these people decide to join the bank? So from that perspective, I think we're really seeing the benefits and people are trying are, are seeing the benefit of the bank and joining the bank during this period. You don't have to walk into a branch. You don't have to fill in paperwork. You do everything on your phone. We complete all of the regulatory requirements on the back end digitally. We spent a lot of time to try to make sure that we have a world-class onboarding process. And that's really coming through in this, in this period. The other thing that I think we're seeing is we're also seeing a lot of positive feedback from our clients. So we've had a few clients come back and say, you know, when I joined the bank, had it not been for Vitality Money... I would not have been able to withstand the, the financial shocks that we're seeing currently. From our perspective, I think that feels good that we're making a difference.
0: Well, it's welcome to Professor Anthony Turton, who is with the University of Free State. There's a fascinating development that you've been working on to measure viral loads from sewage samples. This could be relevant in the fight against. COVID-19. Just unpack exactly what it is that you've managed to get here.
3: The bottom line is that it's been well known within the scientific literature for some time now that viral load is shed in human waste, either feces in the urine. And this is reported actually by the Chinese after this outbreak some time ago. And there was an open discussion now about whether this is possible for the COVID-19 virus. And it was actually the Dutch laboratory called KWR that became the real world leaders because they isolated the virus and they were able to predict the the existence of a virus in a specific population in the Netherlands before it was even known that the virus was in that particular community. So a long story short, I was working with the business water chamber And the Business Water Chamber is working in cooperation with government on the public-private growth initiative. And we decided that we would like to assist government where we can in fast-tracking the implementation of this technology. So within a relatively short period of time, we reached out to the Dutch, forged a relationship with them. And we then found a laboratory in South Africa that has got the technical skills and the necessary equipment and we have just completed our, our first trial. In fact, we're running our second trial, as i speak at the moment now, to prove the concept. So that's where we are at the moment. How does a trial like this work? So looking at the Dutch, the, you know, the Netherlands is a relatively small country. And for them, it's quite easy to access the sewage works. It's a short distance from the sewage works to the, uh, to the laboratory. So our challenges are somewhat different because we've got a very, very long distance between sewage works and access isn't always easy, etc. So for us, the real breakthrough, I think, is actually on the, let's call it the supply chain side or the uh, you know the value chain side, particularly the logistics of collecting sewage from, from from multiple points. And then, of course, making this from a mathematical perspective, making this statistically representative of the population. This is the big trick. How do you make a sample like that statistically relevant uh, or representative of a larger sample size? And this is where our focus has been on the, let's call it the uh, the, the business side of, the, of this whole process. We've uh, forged a relationship with a company in South Africa, and they have made available bulk sampling equipment that enables a very accurate sample to be taken over a 24-hour period At any one of, any of the 824 wastewater works in the country can be sampled. And those samples taken over a 24-hour period now achieve a statistically representative sample of that population. And we then take that down a couple of hundred kilometres away to a laboratory that we've identified. And that lab has now demonstrated that they can detect the virus. And now the next step is to actually quantify the total load in that sample. And from that, we can then start saying that in this given population, the viral load is either increasing or decreasing over time. And of course, that has got major implications for decision-making as the economy now starts reopening and there's always this fear of the second wave coming.
0: So let me just understand this. We all go to the toilet. That goes into a waste center. Your sampling would take a combination of the waste that's put into that sewage works. In any human
3: waste, either urine or feces, that waste, if the person has got the virus, that waste will contain elements of the virus. Now, that opens some technical questions, so let me just unpack those. The first issue is, is that virus still, for want of a better word, a living virus or a living active pathogen? And the answer is, at this stage, we don't yet know because uh, it may well be an inactive virus. But the important thing is that the virus is made up of proteins, elements of protein, and that gets broken up by the body. And through this technology, we are able to pick up bits and pieces of the virus – And then each virus has got a specific fingerprint in terms of the way that the nuclides are arranged. And from that, we can positively identify that this is COVID-19 or not. And in fact, the same test can be done for other viral pathogens as well. So that's what we've done at this point in time. But I don't want to create any scare out there that the virus in sewage is an active pathogen. In fact, the Center for Disease Control in the United States of America is quite adamant that waste that has gone through a wastewater treatment works that it's fully functional and then discharged back into the river. will not be discharging active pathogens. But, of course, that opens another question because in South Africa, about two-thirds of our wastewater works are not uh, operating to standard, but that's another
0: conversation. How many of these sewage plants are you going to be able to monitor?
3: At this point in time, let me just be very clear that what we have done is a private sector initiative, and the sole purpose of this initiative is to demonstrate whether we can, in fact, roll out this technology very rapidly and at very low cost, and whether we can do it over the logistical distances that South Africa presents us with. So that has been what we've done up to now. Now, Nothing more than that. So in South Africa, we have 824 wastewater works. About 60% of them are dysfunctional in some form or other. So theoretically, we would be able to roll out uh, once we have government support and buy-in for this, we would be able to roll it out to all 824 works, but obviously in a phased way, and I would suggest probably centred on a decision around, around known hotspots, which is currently around you know, the major city centres, Durban, Johannesburg, Port Elizabeth, Town,
0: East London. So it would enable the authorities then to manage the situation better, by watching what happens with the viral loads from week to week.
3: Yes, yeah, so, okay, it's not only the authorities. Remember, it's also business. We've done this through private funding, through private sector funding, and our interest is on the or, uh, on the economic side, because the economic consequences of a prolonged shutdown, of course, are. I mean, you'll appreciate exactly what those are more than I can explain. So the decision makers that we aim this at is not only government decision makers, but also captains of industry, people that are running businesses, etc. Because you know, the bottom line, if it doesn't make sense to shut down an entire economy, where well, you can, in fact, fairly accurately isolate specific populations and you can treat those populations you know, with a greater urgency that, that, that they deserve. You, instead of diluting your response across the whole country, you're now focusing in a, in a known hotspot area.
0: Professor Turton, we know that this is a coronavirus which probably will visit us again or a similar type of a pandemic into the future. What you have now tested and is likely to be applied throughout South Africa, is that going to have other applications into the future? Yes.
3: sewage surveillance is already used by, let's call it the more advanced economies of the world in their drug enforcement processes. Uh, so through a different process that we've used now, what the drug enforcement agencies do is they test sewage for the use of cocaine and other recreational drugs. And they're able to detect, for example, that a new drug dealer has moved into an area fairly quickly and then mount a, uh, an appropriate response. So that's already been done. And that's kind of, you know, it's, it's old news already. What we are looking at is the virus aspect. And so the viral aspect, this is a global initiative. I mean, many labs across the world are, are looking at it. And we can now start looking at specific viruses. So any any pathogen that comes from a virus can also be uh, monitored in much the same way. And I firmly believe that what we're seeing now is the emergence of a new form of epidemiology, wastewater epidemiology, which is likely to become a discipline uh, in its own right, uh, I would guess, in, in, in the very near future.
4: World Bank has estimated that the coronavirus will push a further 23 million people in sub-Saharan Africa into extreme poverty. It means they will have to live on less than $1.90 a day. South Africa is mentioned as one of the three countries with Nigeria and the Democratic Republic of the Congo that will register large increases in the number of extremely poor people. The director of the Institute for Strategic Studies, Dr. Yaki Salier, told the business webinar today that it would push Africa's development back. Make no mistake that
5: COVID-19 is going to deliver um, Africa a huge blow. We are actually at the final stages of finalizing a forecast on the impact of COVID on, on Africa. And in this year, alone, COVID is going to mean that about 14 million additional Africans are classified as being extremely poor. The average size of the African economy is going to decline by about $150 billion this year. And, and I can carry on. COVID is taking Africa backwards by about five, six years. It's going to take us a long time to recover, not only because of what's happening in Africa, but because of the impact of the global contraction upon Africa, a continent that is increasingly dependent upon commodity exports and so on. So the the impact is, is significant. We are all hoping that like in South Africa, what would happen is that uh, the challenges with COVID will speed up, for example, the implementation of the African continental free trade area, speed up digitization and leapfrogging on the continent because uh, it in actual fact sets Africa significantly further behind the achievement of the Sustainable Development Goals by, by 2030. So that's the positive, And I think that's also we were speaking about South Africa. We are also hoping that the president will in actual fact Uh, use this opportunity of the challenges uh, in South Africa to implement the policies, the recommendations that are so obvious that need to be done. So COVID is much larger than the 2008 global economic recession in terms of its impact on Africa.
4: The phrase that's often used in South Africa by business and the media is that many of South Africa's intractable problems – from the massive civil service wage bill to power over teaching is firmly laid at the door of trade unions and the South African Communist Party, who have a hold over the ruling party, the ANC, because of the tripartite alliance. But political analyst Muletsi Mbeki, who used to work for Kusatu, told the Business Webinar today that he believed the unions have no real muscle in the country.
6: I worked for Cosatu in the early 90s and and the trade union leadership, what one has to, be, has to be realistic. The trade union leadership was in partnership with in, with the ANC and is, to some extent, still is. And this has led to the near destruction of the trade of the trade union movement in this country. The Cossatu, different sides of COSATU. Aligned themselves with Jacob Zuma in his fight against Tabo Mbeki and, and so on and so forth. So, what has happened is that Kosatu then started to fragment. So, Vavi was kicked out. The largest union in uh, was kicked out. Uh, the Mine Workers Union, which was why the, if not the largest, the second largest, splintered. And led to the formation of Amcu. So the unions, many people think the unions have muscle in this country, and the ANC pretends that the unions have muscle. They have no muscle. We saw in in April, the ANC refused to implement. The ANC government refused to implement a pre-agreed wage increase that was agreed in 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 2018. That was was a three-year agreement. The government just decided to ignore and not implement, and and the unions are are stuck. They don't know what to do because they haven't got the muscle to do anything. They are hoping the courts will solve the problem for them. So the unions are not uh, the main problem in South Africa. The ANC hides behind the unions when it's convenient, but they have no power. They are very fragmented. in a direct interest of their own, which is their own salary increase, the unions have failed to to fight for themselves. So let alone be an obstacle to government policy, the unions are not an obstacle to government policy. Government use this is just propaganda. When it suits the the politicians, they say no, 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 we can't do it because our communist ally. I mean. The Communist Party is absolutely nothing. It's a, it's a coterie of some gentlemen who 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 get uh, ministerial jobs in the in the in the government. They have no constituency. They, that's why they can't stand for an election. They tried to stand for one local election in in uh, uh, I think it was in the Free State somewhere, and they couldn't get elected. They only got PR votes. They couldn't get direct election. So, so the, the Communist Party and the COSATU are not an obstacle to what the government is doing. It's pure propaganda when the government says we can't do this because of the Communist Party and, 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 and the unions. That's not true. It's the choice that the ANC government has made.
4: The World Bank has predicted this week that South Africa's GDP would contract this year by 7.1%. This contraction, says Peter Leon, the co-chair of Africa of law firm Herbert Smith Freehills, would affect South Africa's ability to attract foreign direct investment in the post-COVID-19 era. Leon told the Business Webinar, organized by Prologue Consulting, that South Africa has not been able, even under the leadership of President Cyril Ramaphosa, to reach the levels of FDI that stood around $9 billion in 2008. It fell to a dismal $1.7 during the Zuma years and is now estimated to be around $5.3 billion. But he said to learn that South Africa is currently seeking from the International Monetary Fund may be a silver lining for FDI, and has suggested other measures that the government could consider to boost investment into the country.
7: I think the country does face a fiscal cliff, an economic crisis which started before the pandemic and which is obviously only going to get worse as a result of the pandemic. I think there are a couple of silver linings, as it were, and you may not think them think of them as such the one is that the government despite the ANC's aversion to to Bretton Woods institutions has now approached the IMF for a loan under the IMF's rapid financing instrument of around 4.2 billion dollars the detail of that will only come out in the budget later this month but that is very significant because although the rapid financing instrument of the IMF is largely unconditional. It just requires a country to have the ability to repay the loan and to you know full transparency around its indebtedness, which South Africa would be able to do, unlike some other African countries, and it it has a very low interest rate, but has to be repaid between three and five years. Interest rates around one percent. I think the significance of that is that the government, since it came to power back in nineteen ninety four, has always had an aversion about the IMF, although the ANC government did under the Zuma administration buy for a loan uh, from the World Bank to build the Kassili and Madupi power stations, you know I, I, I think that's that 's a line in the sand, the fact that this has happened, but I think it given the circumstances the country faces now with the fiscal deficit issues around economic growth, I think it's very likely to lead. In the next year or two, the government having to seek a full blown IMF facility in a form of a standby arrangement, which would give it access to at least around $18 billion from the IMF to support its budget. You know, as I say, I think the silver lining in all of this is that current economic malaise may push the government in a direction it might not have embarked on but for the crisis. And and that would lead to liberalizing the labor and product markets, at least partly privatizing electricity rail and port networks, and deal with what the U.S. State Department described and many others described as the lost decade during the Zuma administration. I I think a number of steps to reassure foreign investors need to happen, and I'm suggesting the following. One is that the, the Protection Investment Act needs to be amended provide foreign investors with effective investment protection which they simply don't have following the termination of the bilateral investment treaties another option would be for south africa to sign the washington convention which established the international center for the settlement of investment disputes back in 1966 which the apartheid government never signed and the current government show no, no interest in signing but that would certainly be a another step in the right direction uh, the other thing the government could do is actually just follow the advice the DTI originally gave back in 2009 which was to renegotiate the BIT the bits with the EU on the basis of the SADC model bit which again it has not done and i think all of these steps would be steps in the right direction a further suggestion i would make is for President Ramaphosa to withdraw the notices of termination President Zuma made on the EU bits. Now, why would I suggest that? Because there is actually some legal precedent for this, basically involving two cases brought by the Law Society and by the Democratic Alliance, the official opposition, back in 2017 and 2018, that it is unconstitutional for the executive to terminate any international treaty without a prior resolution of parliament. There was no resolution of parliament at any stage for the termination of any of these bits. And in 2017, the Western Cape High Court in the Democratic Alliance case said that the executive had to revoke South Africa's notice to withdraw from the Rome Statute establishing the International Criminal Court was to be no resolution from Parliament. Similarly, the Constitutional Court, and obviously that's a binding precedent, in 2018 ordered the President to withdraw his signature from the 2014 protocol that suspended the operations of the SADC tribunal. You remember that tribunal was effectively dismantled at the behest of the Mugabe government following the land claims case in in the SADC tribunal. So I, I certainly think that would be open to to the government to consider in the light of those precedents. i just want to make just talk a little bit briefly about the african continental free trade area agreement which entered into force about a year ago at the end of may 2019 exactly this is obviously a, a revolution in terms of trade cooperation um and trading arrangements across africa it's basically it will it 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 establishes africa as a free trade area the the process has been slightly slowed down the treaty was supposed to or the free trade agreement was supposed to come into effect on the 1st of july this year the pandemic has uh, has uh, stopped that from happening it looks as though it will come into effect early next year but the interesting thing about the treaty or the free trade agreement is that although obviously the the key focus of the Free trade agreement is on the liberalization of trade in goods and services. The second phase of negotiations, which is now underway, relate to intellectual property rights, investment and competition policy. And, um, the, the negotiations on the uh, investment protocol are still ongoing. But one of the things I, I would suggest is that the, the protocol includes predictable and comprehensive commitments around investment protection and investor obligations that are aimed at reducing barriers to foreign investment or undertakings from governments regarding protection against expropriation and non-discrimination, that it builds on the various regional regional economic communities. Obviously, the East African community is is the most integrated and and creates favourable conditions for investors and i think most important of all it creates a dedicated dispute settlement mechanism because obviously the free trade agreement the trade and services side of it like the world trade organization agreement only operates on an interstate basis so the question is going to be what will happen with the investment protocol Will the investment protocol allow investors to have a direct right of suit against a state that's not clear at the moment
0: This has been episode 46 of Inside COVID-19. I'm Alec Hogg. Until Monday, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.